Hello and welcome to this latest edition of The Internationalist, Higher Education Matters, a podcast from the Association of Commonwealth Universities. I'm Natasha Locken. In this series, we delve into the responsibility of universities to confront both the past and the present. I'm asking who gets to learn and who gets to teach in today's society, where the legacy of empire is still an open and often painful issue. Universities are places of learning and they have a critical role in creating open and fairer societies, but they also reflect the world in which they operate and they can even reinforce inequalities. In today's episode, we're getting to the heart of this issue and talking about those whose minds and lives are shaped by university, students. The traditional model of universities has been, it could be argued, elitist. They've been viewed as ivory towers that rise above society rather than reflecting it. We are starting to see this change as more students from different backgrounds enter higher education. But what is their experience of actually being at university like? And how should universities create a sense of belonging for all of those who attend? I'm joined today by two guests who bring different perspectives on this topic. Candice Brunette de Bassigay is Acting Vice Provost and Associate Vice President of Indigenous Initiatives at Western University in Canada. Welcome, Candice, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Larissa Kennedy is President of the National Union of Students in the UK. She's currently on a sabbatical year from reading Politics, International Studies and Hispanic Studies at the University of Warwick. Hello to you, Larissa. Hi, thanks so much for having me as well. Larissa, I'm actually going to come to you first as the uh, student in the room to ask you your thoughts on this idea of universities being an inclusive space for all students. Do you think that's a realistic ambition? I don't think that universities as we know them are able to be inclusive for all students. No, because they're spaces that were never built by nor for us. And so it's almost um, this question of trying to force black and brown students into a space that's kind of always going to be reproducing you know, forms of racism that they experience. And so whilst I think it's important that we we look at what decoloniality means within the academy, I also think it's important that we're building spaces outside of it because, you know, those spaces are never going to truly reflect as much as we try and and we kind of move within them in the ways that we can and do what we can to to improve them. I just think in the long run, um, we're also going to need to think about how we build spaces that are actually centred on the healing of black and brown folks, centred on the kind of education that we not only want but deserve and need and I'm just yeah I'm excited about the the kind of limitless possibilities once we're actually building beyond these these systems and structures that are actually complicit and active um, actors in our in our kind of oppression and, and the violence that we face. And you talk about spaces outside the academy do you mean literally I mean and I know I know that you don't mean literal spaces but you mean outside that means that you don't see a space or room for those spaces rather within universities is that right? I do think that decolonizing work within the academy is so so important don't get me wrong I love doing that work and seeing how far we can push uh, the boundaries of what we can do within but I also really do take great pride in being a small part of the team at the Free Black University. At the moment we're building this hub for radical and transformative knowledge that actually centres black healing and already I can just see that you know that that space is going to be far beyond and move far beyond what we could ever do within the academy because we're not fighting within. I mean if I may that's that's quite a sort of pessimistic perspective really or viewpoint on on universities and their capacity to change and transform. Candace, do you agree? 
I can completely respect and I, I, I don't deny that it is a struggle. Like the work that um, I've lent and my labor <laughs> to the, the project of decolonizing from within or indigenizing from within, as we talk about here in Canada. Um, and there are days, you know, there are days I question that project. It is a project of struggle continuously because the disciplines, the structures, the policies, the procedures, they were not built with Indigenous peoples in mind. And when we look at Indigenous peoples in Canada, um, from my grandparents' generation, my, my grandparents' generation were legally prohibited from attending universities um, unless they enfranchised. And enfranchisement meant that they gave up their rights as Indigenous peoples uh, to assimilate. And that was forced assimilation, certainly to get a, a high, get higher education. But even after those laws were abandoned, there was continued to be an assumed assimilation. And those assume, the assumed assimilation happens in how the institution is built on Euro-Western ideologies, colonial ideologies, racist ideologies that reproduce the ways of thinking about Indigenous peoples and Indigenous ways of knowing. And it tends to silence us and it tends to other us. The work that I'm doing in, in universities is trying to shed light on that. And that's a, um, a project of struggle because it's so dominant in the institution. It's so taken for granted that people don't generally see it or even recognize it. So you feel like you're trying to point something out that people aren't interested or willing to recognize. So I hear and respect what Larissa is pointing to. I, I don't deny that reality, um, but I still, I'm holding on to some hope. I'm still working within the, the, the institution and trying to do what we can because I have seen change. What kind of change? When I think about the intergenerational shifts in my own family, uh, it's clear, you know, um, my grandparents' generation legally prohibited. Um, my mother's generation, a lot of people at that time in the 70s when she was growing up, you know, were going in as mature students. We're often getting into the university, not directly out of high school, but maybe they would go into the workforce and get into, you know, go to college first, then go to university or go in through a, an access pathway program. Today, in 2020, we're seeing students, First Nations, Indigenous students in Canada coming right out of high school and going into the university. They're getting through at higher rates than they used to. We're still chronically underrepresented. And their experiences, I think, are debatable. But there is a larger representation. And we have more Indigenous faculty members. And this is where I think the, the shifts really happen, is when we have more Indigenous faculty members because they're contributing to changing the, the classroom. That's really exciting. That gives me great hope. So I can see that generational change over time. It's small, but it is it is there. And if I can pick up on the one point which you said, which is this idea that of just how crucial, if we're talking about change, how crucial it is to have representation amongst the, amongst the scholars in the, in the actual academic community, to, ha to, to have members of you know, marginalised communities there. You also talked about the fact that, you know, although there might be more students now than there were before, their experience might be debatable. I wonder, Larissa, can I ask you to reflect on 
I guess the interplay within that and do you know do you have the experience I guess of the change or the difference or, or or the impact of that idea of kind of representation in the people who are teaching you and how that affects your experience of being at university yeah I find that a really interesting one because you know I speak to so many black students who say they just would not have survived the institution without the black the black women specifically actually um, and women of colour who've been doing the work of uplifting them. And it's funny, even, you know, for myself and, and my personal journey through education, like I haven't had like black professors or anything, nothing like that. But I've always continued to, to seek out the black folks at the institution. So, you know, as you said at the beginning, I study um, politics and social studies, Hispanic studies, um, but I actually ended up seeking out black women in the history department, in the sociology department, you know, they weren't even uh, related to my study directly, but I was like, you're there and I need to find out what you're up to and what you're doing just so I can feel like this is possible. Navigating these institutions is hard, like it's exhausting for, for us as students it just sometimes it just feels like insurmountable when you you feel like you're trying to just do do the work and actually get through that which obviously for any student is is a journey but also on top of that feeling that it's that, that this pressure on you to also change the institution because you're looking around and thinking I don't want the, the next set of black students I don't want the next set of students of color after me to have to experience this as well in the UK I don't know if this happens everywhere but in the UK we have these things called freshers fairs so for the first years um, we run a bit of a fair where they can come up to every stall and hear about the society and if they want to get involved so we were running ours for the anti-racism society welcoming people to the stall and student after student after student after student came up to us talking about the racism that they'd experienced um, and how harrowing it had been and how shocked they were. And these students of colour were on day four of their university experiences. Day four is incredible, right? You've only been there four days. What what kind of racism? Do you have examples? Yeah, like it was, it was all of this interpersonal stuff where they felt so ostracised, so othered from the people that were around them. They just felt like they couldn't relate. People were asking things like, can you teach me to twerk? All of this just microaggressions already. And myself relating to that, because at the time I was a second year student and I could really, I could so relate to what they were going through. We can't keep doing this as a community because we, we focus so much on getting people through the door and making sure that people have access to these institutions. But what are we giving them access to? One of the things that I've been sort of pondering about when thinking about this topic is where does that journey into university start? Like, I agree with you, you know, it's, it's not just about, if we think about in the, and again, I'm, I'm afraid that I must speak from the kind of, you know, the UK perspective, A-level results day, which is the kind of day that people find out where they've gone to university, there's lots of focus on, you know, how many black students, for example, have gone into Oxbridge. But what about, what about their experience when they're there, right? I'm quite interested in where this sense of belonging or not belonging might start. And Candice, I mean, if I can ask you to reflect on your own journey, I guess, into university, you know, how much is this, how much is it about trying to foster this sense of belonging really before you set foot in the door? Like it's been a, a journey of struggle for sure. Uh, but in Canada, Indigenous people, we started what we call Indian control of Indian education. In And I know Indian is not the, the appropriate term, but this was back in the 70s. In Canada, we started to... Uh, you know, really just reclaim our rights. At that time, it was all around uh, supporting us in transitioning into the dominant university from in the 70s. So now we're in, in 2020 and every university and college in Canada, I am pretty sure it's almost 100% have uh, Indigenous student services. 
And this is a unit that's there to support them. So it's not just about a service that helps students once they get in and helps them get through. So, okay, so you know how to code switch. Okay, you got to act like this when you go in certain spaces. And we're starting to actually even move beyond that and say, you know what? Indigenous people don't need to change. The university needs to change. What kind of shifts are we saying? Like, what, what do you think is good practice? Well, there's a role like mine at our university. Like, there's a senior leadership role now. I recognize it. You know, it's still um, the typical university structure. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's not transforming maybe the way Larissa is thinking about, you know, really dismantling and, and shifting the way that universities operate. But we are getting... Uh, our voices are at different levels. It's about feeling welcome at university. That's like feeling like a guest, right? If you're welcome in someone's house, you're allowed in as a guest, you know, wipe your feet, be polite, have a cup of tea. And then it's actually about unlocking this idea of the transformational potential of education. We talk about it. What does it actually mean? How can it actually shape your life? And that's really what it's about tapping into. Larissa, does that speak to you? Definitely. I feel like it's this interplay between the fact that these institutions, but but fundamentally the people within them, hold this immense power in both like legitimizing and delegitimizing what we see as worth studying, what is worth knowing about, what is knowledge, and and when there's someone in that space who gets it and is actually legitimizing what you care about and what's relevant to you and even even the pedagogy that you identify with and all of those other things, it really does open up this whole interest in in education that you might not have experienced before like I know for me getting to do work around particularly the the Caribbean it was so enlightening for me because I was like wow this is this really speaks to something that that's actually relevant to me and actually touches me in a different way and I'm like yes I want to spend the hours reading and I want to do this work and I want to get into it and until that point I was just doing the work I was doing the work to do the work but when it when it hit that point, I was like, I'm doing this work because I love it and I'm interested. And that's when um, it starts to make a difference. And that's when it almost becomes easier to, to navigate these spaces because you know what you're doing it for. If I think back to the time that I was at university, there was one lecturer of colour in the department that I was at university at. And you're right. She was kind of she was a beacon. What was interesting is it, I didn't gravitate to her just because she had the same skin color as me. It's not you know, it wasn't as, as, as kind of crude as that. It was also because what she was actually teaching, you know, she taught a module that was about pidgin and Creole languages. And I come from, you know, that's that's my parents from Mauritius. They speak a Creole language. And that was the first time that I'd ever seen that language actually, I guess, acknowledged as a kind of scholarly a scholarly material as something that could, you know, that was frankly, I guess, worth studying. It was just something that, you know, my parents spoke at home and then obviously outside the house you speak, you speak English, right? But actually to see it, to, to study it in the same way that you study other languages was really, really powerful. And that's, that's the thing that struck me and stayed with me, you know, and that's really interesting, those moments and that, how just how important those kind of experiences are and how much it is about connections between people Candice Larissa does any thoughts or reactions oh I I mean I I, my own experience is coming to the to the fore for me you know same same I I literally I can viscerally remember the moment that I went into a class and I saw a Nishnabe woman teaching in front and it it struck me like my own internalization you know, I was confronted with that too, because 
I, it was, it was not the norm. And it, I, it, I noticed that, you know, I noticed that in myself and, but everything that she taught, she taught from an Indigenous standpoint. It had relevance to me and my family and it carved everything that I did after. I was never engaged in high school. I was practically pushed out of high school, um, assumed a lot of things because of where I came from and assumed never to go to university, frankly. I, I was told by my guidance counselor, you're not university material. And I only got into university through a bridging program. And I, I say it quite proudly because I say I got in through the back door because they would have never let me in the front door. I didn't have the courses and I didn't have the grades and I didn't have the self-esteem. I really believed I really believed everything that everyone said about Native people. I really did. I internalized it. And it was through my education by Indigenous people around decolonizing ourselves that I started to deconstruct that and start to release the shame that I had believed, that I was not smart enough, that I didn't belong there, that my voice didn't matter. Once you're in the university, you've gone through that kind of journey, you're there, you're in a classroom, you're surrounded by students. How... How important is ha is the way in which you're taught? We've spoken a little bit about what you're taught and how that's important. But what about the ways in which you're taught and the impact of that? Uh, Larissa, have you got some reflections on that? For me, this is one of the most interesting parts of decolonization because it, it is the thing that really stirs me to think about what abolition of universities as we know them looks like and what it would mean to build anew with universities that create, you know, pedagogy rooted in um you know liberation and rooted in healing and rooted in care and all of those things and I you know one of the things that we tried to do through the Warwick Decolonized project is create spaces um to talk about um decolonizing pedagogy and the fact that you know one person um claiming to be the arbiter of knowledge and what is and isn't relevant and what you know that's never is that ever going to be truly anti-racist like I mean just even beginning to ask those questions do you think you've seen it Candice think reflecting on the work that's happened in Canada I've seen it in pockets within indigenous pedagogies it's about self-evaluation so it's not about getting other people to evaluate you but you evaluate yourself and and um, I've seen little pockets in, in even our university, Western University, the Faculty of Education just recently applied to their B.Ed. program, a pass or fail system, which I thought was really great because it gets us away from that competitive model. The competitive model gets us into trouble because then you have students, you know, just touting their marks and all they care about is whether they're beating each other in their GPA marks. And it's just, it doesn't create... Um, I guess, a community of learners, the way that we want to see it in Indigenous education anyway. So I, I guess I've seen it, but I've also seen it not be able to be completely fulfilled either. You've both spoken about the fact that this is, this is hard work, this is labour and it's, and it's a struggle and it can be tough. Is, is there an ultimate goal here? Do you think that it's possible to move past the struggle and what might it look like? What might the student experience at university look like if we are able to move past the struggle? Candice, can I ask you first? I don't know if it will ever not be a struggle if we continue to maintain the system as it is. I just hope that we could be less of a struggle. I'm, I'm quite realistic. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm jaded. <laughs> maybe I need to step back <laughs> and like 
you know, the younger people might have it. Uh, I can't even believe I'm saying that. <laughs> I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm 40, I'm 43. You're doing I'm, yourself a disservice. I'm, I'm, I'm 43. I've been doing this work. I've been doing the work for 20, almost 20 years. And I've seen changes and it, it is getting better for Indigenous peoples in the academy. But it's, it's shifting. You know, the students are getting through, but the faculty are struggling. There's new struggles that emerged as, as we um, progress. Progress is such not the right word I'm looking for, but as we move this journey along, but it's better than it was, you know, 20 years ago. So I guess that's where I'm at today. I, I don't know if it will ever be not a struggle. Larissa, what do you think? Wow. Well, first of all, props to Candice, because I'm 22 and I'm already tired. Um, so <laughs> yeah, no, I think to be honest, I, I think that's why I, I don't see it not being a struggle within the institutions as they exist. I think, as you say, it gets easier. There's going to be, you know, a point at which I'm I'm no longer doing this work and I'm handing on the baton. And I hope at that point, you know, I can look back and say, wow, yeah, it is easier. Even though those people will probably be looking at it thinking this is a struggle in terms of long term. I don't foresee um, it ever being easy for us within these institutions and I think ultimately if we want to access education um, and really access knowledge in, in the most free sense I think we need to build our own spaces that are reflective of the knowledge that we need as a community and the things that we want to pour into our community. This episode for me has really focused a lot on the personal and it's been really inspirational actually to hear from two people whose own, who have taken their own personal journey into university and through university and actually turned that into kind of into work basically and, and, and I recognise that it is, it is, it's hard work, there is labour being done there um, to, to, to help make change and to help kind of move things, move things forward. I'd like to thank our guests for today, Candice Brunette de Bassigay, Acting Vice Provost and Associate Vice President of Indigenous Initiatives at Western University in Canada, and Larissa Kennedy, President of the National Union of Students in the UK. The next episode in our podcast series is going to look at the relationship between universities and the land that they've been built on. We'll be asking, what's the place for reparations? I hope you found this episode of The Internationalist, Higher Education Matters, valuable. The Association of Commonwealth Universities is committed to highlighting the issues that influence learning and teaching in our world. Please do subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts and like, comment and share the programme. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Just search for the Association of Commonwealth Universities. Thank you for joining me, Natasha Lockham. The producer is Lindsay Riley, executive producer Richard Myron and it's an Earshot Strategies production. Mm-hmm.